0: Welcome to the Women of Marvel Podcast. I'm Ellie Pyle and I'm JD Stevens. So today's episode is near and dear to my heart. We are celebrating the return of one of my favorite Marvel characters and one who I was lucky enough to get to work on from the very beginning. Cindy Moon, aka Silk.
1: Silk is so awesome, and as of today, she's back on the shelves. Silk number one is out now, written by Maureen Gu with art by Takashi Miyazawa. Maureen
0: is a critically acclaimed author known for her young adult novels. I believe in a thing called love, and the way you make me feel. I got a chance to talk with Maureen about her career, writing for young adults, and how that prepared her to take on Silk's story. It also helps that she, like Cindy, has a background in journalism.
1: And just so people know, Ellie, you. Have have your own connection to Silk, right? Absolutely. So I was working on Amazing
0: Spider-Man when Silk first appeared there. I got to be there for her costume designs, several of the first ones, we went through a couple different iterations, and then I helped develop her first solo series as the editor for that shortly before I left Marvel.
1: This makes me even more excited to hear your conversation with Maureen. Let's get into it.
0: Hello, Maureen. Welcome to Women of Marvel. We are very excited to have you here with us today. And I will start off by saying I read the first issue of Silk and I love it so much.
2: Oh, yay! I'm so glad! Oh, it's so weird for me to know that it's out there, that some people can read it.
0: Before we get into talking about Silk, because I could talk about Cindy all day, let's talk about you. So you are an acclaimed young adult author, and uh, this is your first time writing comics?
2: It is, yeah. Like any kind of visual, yeah, any medium outside of prose writing. It's
0: really exciting. So how did you get started writing? And then how did you end up writing specifically for young adults?
2: You know, I was a big reader as a kid. I think most writers started off as readers. So that's kind of where the love of books was sparked. I was a pretty good writer in high school. That's kind of when I realized, oh, I'm, you know, this is like a skill that I have through, you know, my English classes and my teachers and that sort of thing. And I was a journalist in high school, and so I thought, you know, I'm a good writer. I'm just going to be a journalist, because to me, my mom was a journalist when I was younger, and it seemed like one of the very few careers you could have as a writer. I really didn't know what else you could do, even though I'm sitting here as like a big reader. Never occurred to me to be an author, you know, for a lot of reasons. Most of them kind of like practical, but also... I just didn't see authors that looked like me or had my name or, you know, even the books I read, the characters didn't have experiences that were very similar to mine. So it just never occurred to me to be an author. And I studied journalism as an undergrad, but I soon realized, oh, this is... <laughs> I don't like having to stick to facts and <laughs> do research. and you know, be held accountable for the stuff I'm writing about. I was like, oh, I I don't think I'm a journalist. I I think I like to write, but, you know, I just ended up studying a lot of books, taking a lot of English Lit classes because I've always just liked reading and talking about books and writing about books. It's always just been there for me. So I ended up minoring in English Lit and then I graduated and I had no life skills, you know? (laughs) (laughs) I do know. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I just decided, okay, I'm going to stick to what I love. I love books. I'm going to temporarily work at a bookstore. And while I worked at a bookstore, it was clear that I just loved the children's book section. That was like my specialty. And I would end up there all the time recommending books to kids and parents. And so I thought, you know what? Maybe I want to work in kids' books. And so someone told me, you can get a job in publishing. you know. And again, that was just not a career path that I knew about. So I thought, okay, if I want to do that, I want to maybe go to grad school or something because I don't know anything about it. And, you know, the one thing like I was familiar with was like going to school to learn something. So I thought, okay, maybe I have to go to grad school, Applied to a bunch of grad school programs. And one of them actually was children's literature writing program at the New School in New York. And I just applied kind of on a whim or a lark or something and or just to see if I could do it. And it required a writing sample. So I wrote the beginning of a YA novel that ended up being the first chapter of my first published book, but that wouldn't happen for almost 10 more years. Wow. Since the t- this time that I wrote that sample. Long story short, I decided to go to another grad school program to study publishing instead. I thought it was more practical. Graduated right after the recession hit. <laughs> it was hard for me to s- scrape together publishing jobs. I was like doing internships. I was I kept working on this novel because it was so fun it was the first time that i did any kind of writing that felt so easy as in like i enjoyed it so much and it felt like it suited my writing voice teen writing and so i kept at it and i had all these jobs in the meantime you know i was a designer i worked for small book publishers in la which if you know there's like none but i did a little bit of that and then i sold my first novel and i got an agent and it was very like a meandering path, but I kind of stuck to it because I love the book. And then I eventually started writing enough that I could do it full time.
0: I love stories like that, and I love for our listeners to get to hear about how meandering paths can be, because I think a lot of people assume that, you know, it's something you either get to do or you don't, and it could take a very long time, and there can be lots of interesting twists and turns along the way, so I love that story. Did you have particular writers or books that you loved as a reader growing up that you think influenced your own writing?
2: Yes. The books that made me a reader and that made me love reading were the Babysitter's Club books. Like a lot of authors my age that write YA, middle grade, it's like a very common answer, you know, and they're just so great. They're just about, you know, these 12, 13-year-old girls who like to babysit in Connecticut, you know, it's which is like... I don't know, for whatever reason I really related to that. It helped that they had, there was actually an Asian American character, the first one that I probably ever read, and the only one I would read for many years after that, unfortunately. Then I just read everything, you know, but I really loved series books. And so I think that the books I read between the ages of like seven and 14 were the most impactful books. And I think that's true for a lot of people. It's what it's called in publishing is middle grade novels now. So those books really stick with you. And everything I read then like Anne of Green Gables, you know, Little Women, Little House on the Prairie, An In the Cupboard, Fear Street, Sweet Valley High, anything that was like a series and I could keep ordering every week from the Scholastic, you know, weekly reader or going to Costco with my parents. I loved. You know, then when I decided to pursue writing, when I was applying to that grad school program I mentioned, I actually didn't know what kind of books I wanted to write. I just knew I love Kid Lit. I have a passion for books for children because I had such an intense love for books as a kid. So I just really I, I feel like my connection to that feeling never left me. And so I wasn't sure. And then my cousin you know, for my birthday and I was 20 something, she bought me The Princess Diaries. She was like, I think you'll like this book. And I looked at it and I was like, are you joking? I'm like a cool adult and I'm reading Zadie Smith. But then I cracked it open and it was so good. And it was, it just appealed to me like, oh, this is what I wanna write. I like immediately recognized the voice and like, The humor, the fun, just like the fun premise of like a girl who finds out she's a princess in some fictional European country. And there's like a romance and the girl is so funny and nerdy and kind of like an outsider. So all of that kind of made me realize, oh, this is the kind of book I want to write. And then back then YA wasn't like a category yet. I think it was just like teen books so I didn't really know that's what I was writing. Um, but by the time I sold my first book, YA was firmly a category because I was 2013.
0: Very, very cool. Did you read comics at all or have any encounters with comics prior to being asked to write one?
2: I read Archie Comics exclusively. That's like, a great those answer. Those were the comics I bought. Right? Um, Betty and Veronica. Obsessed. Betty and Veronica. Yeah, I was like Jughead. Ugh, no thanks. I just want to see like what... <laughs> fun things Betty and Veronica are up to. And I read as a kid, I loved reading the comics in the newspaper, which makes Mm -hmm. me sound a hundred years old, but that's how I discovered Calvin and Hobbes and Spider-Man and even cool comics like Marmaduke. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I read all of it because I was such a voracious reader. So I'm like, yes, 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 this is the format. So that was like my earliest, you know, comics, but superhero comics, you know, other than Spider-Man, I wasn't like a kid who, sought out comics. You know, when I was growing up, that was like, boys did that. You know, I hate saying that, but it's just true. When I was growing up, I never knew any girls that would go to a comic shop or buy the actual comics other than like the Archie ones, which I feel like were like early YA, if I think about mm-hmm. it. And so other than Spider-Man, I loved the X-Men cartoon to grow yep. up. And all of that to me were like prestige um, <laughs> superhero <laughs> cartoons back when in the early nineties are so good. And the X-Men is like something that really I loved for a long time. And I felt like that was like my earliest intro to like having a bit of a nerdy love for something, like a fangirl feeling. And then as a adult, I love movies and I love, it's like so obvious, but I am like very basic. I love all the Marvel movies so much. I've watched all of them many, many times. I just, I'm like the perfect audience for those movies, I think. And I worked on a important piece of this puzzle by the way with specifically to working with marvel now is that i when i was working for this art book publisher we worked on this giant 2000 page book called the history of marvel comics and it required me acquiring every single marvel comic from Hmm. its inception to present day and so i got really familiar with the history of marvel the history of comics and then, you know, I got very attached to certain characters. And the, my favorite to this day is Spider-Man, you know? Like, I love Spider-Man. There's something about Peter and his journey that just felt more relatable to me than any of the other characters. And so when I got approached to write Silk, I was like, holy crap. Because, you know, someone from Marvel emailed me like, "We're wondering if you're interested in writing for Marvel. And I was like, oh my gosh, I wonder what it is. Could it be blah, 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 blah. And then when he said Silk, uh, like, oh, my God, it's like all my Spidey love kind of coming into fruition with this character that is the first Korean American, you know, she's a girl, like she's in the whole spider world. And so I was so excited and it was like, I don't know if I would have had time or made the time to write a comic if it wasn't Silk, you know, Mm -hmm. because as much of it could have been a cool opportunity to write for any other, you know, character Or series, but Silk to me is a purposeful decision on my part to accept that because I was really busy at the time, you know, and so it just seemed like, yeah, do I have time for this? But I I was like, yes, I will make the time for this. I will do this. It is my first comic and I've always been interested in graphic novels. I'm an avid graphic novel reader. My husband's an illustrator, works in animation, so I'm always like kind of straddling that world. And so I wanted an opportunity to one day go into comics and When I got that email, I was like, okay, this is the perfect time to do it.
0: Yeah, it seems like an absolutely perfect fit. And I didn't know that you had a journalism background. So you even get to bring your knowledge of kind of that world into Cindy and her current job.
2: Yeah, I'm not as intrepid as her. That's why I failed. But I love the idea of journalism more than me doing the work. (laughs) So it's really fun to write about that world. You're right.
0: So it's also a good fit, I imagine, for your voice, since you've done a lot of kind of characters who have pop culture knowledge and connections. And even though, you know, Cindy could be out of touch at times, you know, you still get to, you know, kind of write the quippiness that she shares with Spider-Man and draw upon things for that did you find that was a good fit for the voice that you use in your prose writing or were there different skills you had to draw upon for that here
2: this is a great question i would say that my ya novels they're very character driven they're not like high concept you know i write contemporary books that are very are grounded in reality i love writing dialogue it's like one of my Mm -hmm. favorite things which is why i've always had an interest in comics and screenwriting as well like it's just like my favorite part of writing novels is art, is dialogue, actually. So I just felt like, OK, that's kind of a nice transition to move into comics. So I felt confident about my ability to write fun, quippy dialogue, and especially comedy, because I really like writing comedy. I didn't realize till I started writing it that I'm like, oh, I just have a lifetime of comic-y banter in my brain from absorbing it for decades. And I didn't know it was there. Suddenly all that kind of like the cheeky, like puns and stuff just like come flowing out of me. And I I was like, where is this coming from? And I realized, oh, I have watched every Marvel movie. I have read a billion comics from working on that project. This is a medium that I've consumed for so long and it's just kind of in there. Not to say that I did like a perfect job, but it was just not this big, different, skill that I had to acquire, I found out like, oh, okay, I can just tap into this thing that I've been kind of storing up as a writer for a long time. I, I had no idea that that was like all in my head, <laughs> um, but it's so fun, you know? I'm like, oh yeah, I, I, get, I love being able to say these puns. I love cracking jokes. So, and I, I also love taking on some of the voices of these characters that I've read in comics, like Jonah, you know, so fun for me to do his kind of like outdated boomer, you know, just like a grumpy old dude. it's really fun
0: yeah let's talk about jonah because the jonah Mm -hmm. and silk relationship has always been very interesting that he has like separate interactions with silk and with cindy but that he likes both of them more than he ever liked peter parker or spider-man so (laughs) what did you find interesting about that relationship because i love the way that you've depicted it in the start of this series
2: oh thanks i am always drawn to kind of Old curmudgeon and young person relationships that are like mentory. I think it's such a, an archetype, right? That I just always seems to be pleasing. You know, I love sports stuff where it's like the coach is kind of a, you know, a reluctant coach, a reluctant mentor. And then the comics, I really liked that silk, for whatever reason, was more acceptable to Jonah. I'm like, oh, it kind of breaks through this like kind of sexist old school thing that he has respect for Silk versus Spider-Man but you know they have like a whole history so I kind of get it too but I really like that back and forth between them it's really fun for me to write and I also think there's a lot of heart there so that's kind of my sweet spot I really love writing humorous things with a lot of heart and so I think their relationship there's a lot to mine for a dynamic like that to get that mixture of heart and humor.
0: The theme of a generational clash seems to be very much at play in this series, not only between Silk and Jonah, but between Jonah and Nora Winters and Silk kind of adapting to, Mm -hmm. from being the analog person at this online company to some of her coworkers. First question, you know, why Nora as someone to kind of bring in as a counterpoint to Jonah?
2: I have to give that Nora credit to Jake, actually.
0: So Jake Thomas was Maureen's editor, and the writer and the editor often work very closely in comics, particularly at the beginning of a series.
2: In the original, I think I just had some other person as like a bit of a foil, and Jake suggested, "How about we bring in Nora? She's just like a perfect fit in there." Like, "Oh, okay, we're just going to drop a hint that there's some friction here," and she's just a, yeah. It's nice to because the the website that they are working for now is called Threats and Menaces. And I had my vision for Threats and Menaces was that it's very like cool and Gen Z and millennial offices, you know, and it's when Cindy starts to work there, it's kind of like, she just kind of ignores all the perks, you know, the ping pong, the yoga, the fun office, and she is like, ready to work. We wanted like, okay, someone else there that is also in charge that butts heads with Jonah, because that's not Jonah's style. If he was building this office, it would not look the way that it does. So kind of made sense to have Nora be the counter she's way cooler and like more plugged into the youth
0: and will we see cindy getting more plugged into the youth and perhaps becoming a little bit closer to hip like her peers so when i read all the
2: old silk comics i loved the whole premise of her being in a bunker for 10 years it's like sets up so much cool stuff for her character i kind of feel like the fish out of water aspect of her um you know not being updated with slang all that stuff was so fun and but kind of done with the previous series i decided to kind of not deliberately like go out of my way to have her suddenly be more in tune Mm -hmm. but i kind of feel like i'm just going to have her naturally be a little more millennial or gen z Mm -hmm. now i actually i'm like saying millennial and gen z I know those labels are annoying. So I'm just saying both because I'm like, whatever. She could be in between a mishmash of both. But just to imply that like, you know, she's current. Mm -hmm. She's not 100% current, I would say. I'm not mining that for a lot of comedy or plot. Let's just say, you know, that she's kind of out of touch. I've had her evolve a little from that.
0: And that completely makes sense because she's now been out of the bunker for a little while, though having mentioned Silk's 10 years in the bunker. I am curious if you think she would have any particular advice for us now after almost a year of quarantine and our hopeful eventual re-emergence into the world.
2: I know. Oh my gosh, that is something I never actually thought about crazily enough. It's the fact that we're all kind of bunkered too. She's kind of an angry person. Mm -hmm. It has to do with I personally think that is a very Korean aspect. Koreans hold grudges, (laughs) we don't forget. And we're very passionate. So I feel like part of that fueled her in the bunker. And for me, during this pandemic, I also feel like I am never gonna forget every single person during this pandemic that has made this worse for all of us. (laughs) And you know, it gives me energy. and but i also feel positive because you know i am optimistic which is why i'm always drawn to peter at the end of the day we're going to come out of this hopefully we'll learn a few lessons we'll be better all of us now know how to make banana bread and we all own really comfy sweatpants now you know Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. i would say cindy would tell us like you have a lot to do when you get out so that'll motivate you you know like revenge and finding your family and also She probably learned some meditation too, you know, like breathing exercises, like live in the moment and then get lots of therapy after.
0: Yes. Yes. (laughs) That is also a good lesson for Silk. So are we going to see her going to therapy at all in this series? Yes.
2: (laughs) And I can't say more, but it's one of the huge reasons why I love Silk. I Mm -hmm. loved that therapy was, I'm like, whoa, comics talking about therapy to me, that was really progressive and evolved and i am a huge proponent of therapy i have an anxiety disorder which i talk about openly all the time and so i just love that part of her growth and character development is through therapy and so that was one of the huge draws for me with silk and i definitely wanted to include it in the series too
0: well, while we're on the topic of me possibly trapping you into spoilers, uh, how about Peter? Are we going to see anything <laughs> from him in the series? I've only read the first issue, so.
2: There is mention of Peter and interaction with Peter, but he is not really a big character because, you know, he's got his own thing. Spider-Man yeah, is tied up in a billion other adventures, so... Yeah, he it's like I acknowledge that he exists and that they have a relationship of some sort, but it's not a big plot point.
0: I'm just glad that you got to write him a little bit since, you know, he's your favorite. Yes, so I lo- I look forward to seeing what you did with him. I was a Spider-Man editor for 4 years, so, you know, he's he's got lots of places oh to be. Oh gosh, exciting. So, this first issue ends with a mysterious new foe. And to cap off mm-hmm. our trilogy of spoilers, what can you tell us about <laughs> some of the villains that we'll be seeing as the series goes forward?
2: You know, in typical comic style, there's more than one villain. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes you're like, is this the actual villain or is this mm-hmm. the actual villain? Or are they both? Or is everybody just complicated? <laughs> um, and so I try to-
0: <laughs> I, I vote for that last one, but continue. <laughs> yeah
2: same there are two big main villains in this one and how they work together and then don't work together is kind of where i had a lot of fun i love a complicated villain i love a sympathetic villain but i also like a straight up bad villain where it's like no let's not talk about their like troubled childhood they're just bad and they're violent and we must stop them i like the black and whiteness of that too you know superhero comics so do a little bit
0: of both, I think. So on this series, you got to work with longtime ghost spider artist Takeshi Miyazawa. What was that like? I loved the art in this and some of the new character designs. How was that working with him?
2: So great. He is so good. So this is my first time writing comics. So when I'm writing the descriptions, part of me is like, how much detail do I give, you know, and how much do I hold back on to let him do his thing? I worried about I don't want to step on his toes and dictate every little detail that's very annoying, but I also knew my strengths and my weaknesses as a storyteller. I really wanted Cindy have a look and feel for her life and the things that she would have in her bedroom, for example, so I had so much fun with like, this is her bedroom, here's what's on the walls, here are the books. You know, she's Korean American too, and so I really find it very important to have authenticity that she would behave in a way that a Korean American kid would raised by Korean parents. And so I like to give a lot of details, like little things, you know, like you'll find, she has shrimp chips lying on her bedroom floor and, you know, little details like that. So I a lot of fun and Tak was so, he got all of that stuff. Cause I would say, this is kind of important. Can you make sure you include this? Cause I don't want him to like skim over that and, you know, put potato chips. So he's so nice and receptive to everything. And then if there's like a fight scene i am imagining something in my head right i'm like i think he she just like a roundhouse kick to his face and then this guy ends up in the train tracks but then i say i don't know attack if you could think of something cooler like please do it i don't know if this is cool or cheesy or like really unimaginative and so he you know i'm like dude action is your thing he's really great about that and we've had honest conversations too about like you know i'd be like i don't like her clothes <laughs> You know, I just, I love clothes and fashion. So I'm like, I'm sorry. Can you give her cooler clothes like this? Like, I have a lot of visuals. I wasn't sure, too. I'm like, is it okay to include, like, photos and stuff in the document to give him? I don't know if that's annoying. And my friends who work in comics and then also Jake, they were like, oh, no, it's fine. Like, do whatever you want. It helps. So I did a lot of that stuff. Like, I imagine that she would wear a trench coat like this. So the first issue, she's wearing this amazing trench coat. And, yeah, he just... He, he's just so easygoing and, you know, he's done a ton of comics, I have a lot of respect for him, so I, I'm very mindful of that and I don't want to be too demanding. And anyways, whatever he comes up with, every time he's done with, a, you know, the sketches, I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> so much cooler than I imagined in my head. It's probably why this is your job and this is my job.
0: But that collaborative relationship, I'm sure, was pretty unique after having worked in prose where it is both your responsibility and also your vision coming through. You said that he would turn things in and that they'd be better than there were in your head. Was there any particular example of something like that that you were surprised by?
2: His character design for one of the villains was so cool. You know, I imagine, I have like a vague idea in my head. It's like a demonic blank. I'm not gonna say it. So in my head, I'm like imagining probably the most like embarrassing, like elementary school cartoon design of this creature. And when I saw it, I was like, wow, that's so cool. You know, I love that design. And there's also a scene, oh, my favorite scene. I think it's in this third issue. It's like a double page spread. All I will say about it is that in my head, I imagined it like where's Waldo. Like that's the level of crazy, mm-hmm. and when I okay, so my husband is an illustrator, and I showed him. I was like, "Oh, look what Tack did! Isn't this amazing?" And he was—he looked at it, and then he looked at him. He's like, "I cannot believe you made him draw all that. That is so." <laughs> he's like, "That is so annoying of you." <laughs> and I'm like, "Whatever. He did a great job." But then, then I felt bad. I'm like, "Tack, I'm sorry that I gave you this." My husband told me it was very annoying to draw something like this, and he's so good natured. He's like, "Ah, oh, no, it's fine." But that had a level of detail and attention that I did not expect, it was so great. I think people will know what it is if they read the comics, they'll know what I'm referring to.
0: Are there other tips that you've picked up from your husband on how to work with artists and what they find irritating and uh, what they appreciate?
2: He actually did not have to give me tips because I have witnessed my husband working as an illustrator. So I have heard, I've known him I have been with my husband for a long time, <laughs> and so I have seen all the various jobs he's had, the notes he's gotten, you know, received for his work, and he also does children's illustrated books. So yes, I know exactly what annoys artists, and so that's what was is always in the back of mind when I'm dealing with tech. But also, you know, I've been a project manager in the past. I've worked with all the different content creators and put it together. And so I'm very good at understanding, like there's a way to treat and talk to creators, you know, mm-hmm. and I am one myself too. So I know what I find to be kind of an obnoxious request versus one that is maybe is annoying, but at least requested in a respectful way that seems to be, you know, understanding of what they're asking you and how much time it might take. So. It definitely helps me a lot to have lived and known an artist for many, many years and then have had many jobs where I've been managing all sorts of different people. So, yeah, I've worked with artists and I've worked with writers and I've had to put their work together. And so it just, it didn't feel hard for me to work on a comic in that way. I do know a lot of authors have only worked in prose and have had full control over their work. And has never had to collaborate with people and it, it is hard for a lot of them. And I understand that too, because they're a lot more territorial about their work and they're a lot more confident and have a very strong vision for what they want. And they're not used to having to take everybody's <laughs> opinions. And I am very used to that. So even if I've worked in my own novels, when you work with an editor too, you know, your editor gives you a lot of critical feedback and you shape the book together, even though you, at the end of the day, you have a ton of ownership over it. So it is different, but it's not like a cold turkey thing going from, I think maybe if you were a self-published author, it would feel a little more jarring.
0: Well, it sounds like you were pretty much destined to write comics at some point with just the blend of your skills and for this character in particular. But. Was there anything on this that you found to be particularly challenging or surprisingly challenging?
2: Yeah, I, <laughs> I feel like I kind of went into it a little too confidently when I started outlining and drafting. And then I hit the fourth or fifth issue, and I was like, oh my goodness. Did I totally not pay attention to Cindy's journey in the previous comics? I suddenly felt this fear that I, my version of Cindy and Silk, might not be what readers want. I pretty much try not to have those thoughts when I'm writing stuff because you know you can't please everybody, and you have to, you have to have your own vision, and you have to have belief in that. So I, you can't try to think of all, all the different people and what they want. But I think it was around the time when the announcement came out about the comic, and I just had this. Deluge of enthusiastic, you know, so wonderful um, for one to be able to share that I was working on it, but two, like just to see that excited reaction. But then I think that kind of paralyzed me because suddenly I was looking at all the things that I had in store and I wrote, and I thought, oh, people are gonna, I didn't put enough of this. Uh, she's a little different from the previous version. Uh, like I don't know if people are gonna like, there's some stuff that I do with Cindy that is a departure. From the previous Cindy, and I really hope that people are open to it. Part of me it feels so—I feel pretty strongly about it, so I'm pretty tough in my stance that it was the right decision to make. But I also feel like I want to make sure that people who love silk continue to love silk. So, you know, I didn't—I suddenly had all these self-doubts, and you know, Jake got this panic email from me. That I'm like, I think I lost her character arc. <laughs> I don't know. I think I, I don't know what I'm doing. And so he really helped me, you know, he kind of calmed me down and we walked through where we wanted the story to end up together. And then I felt good again. That was kind of the hardest part for me when I suddenly had all these voices in my head, giving me a lot of self-doubt, which sounds, it sounds wild that I didn't feel self-doubt until that moment. But part of like me being able to do any of the work that I do is I have to be able to turn off the critic you know I have to just believe in what I'm doing but there are cracks here and there and so that was like a moment of cracking where I felt really nervous about doing her justice and telling a fun story and then you know obviously suddenly I also realized I don't write comics what am I thinking people are gonna read this and be like this isn't a comic you know I had all these thoughts and then we figured out the ending and I felt so good
0: it absolutely is a comic (laughs) and as Cindy's First fan, I love what you're doing so far. So I have faith that you will take us to good places going forward. Um. (laughs) But that is something that is unique, I guess, not just to comics, but to working in an established IP, kind of the question of these characters do go through different iterations with every writer who kind of comes on board and, you know, that we want them to evolve and change because that's what makes stories interesting but also fans have certain things that they're attached to so I'm glad that you had a good editor in Jake to kind of you know go through that with you but I think at the same time that even if people think they want something different they I'm pretty confident they'll be happy with what you deliver to them
2: I hope so I just have to at the end of the day feel good about it, you know, and trust that it'll find, it'll find its readers. And I do think there's just a thirst out there. People love Silk. And so they're kind of just excited to have her back, you know, but I hope, hopefully they like this version of her. And I should also say that I worked not just with Jake editorially, but with Lindsay Koick, who is now the editor mm-hmm. um, for, for Silk with me. She's replaced Jake and she was also super invaluable with helping me shape this series.
0: That's, I think, what makes the best comics, is when people have a good relationship just kind of across all of the different people on the team. What are you most excited for fans to see in Silk's New Adventures? Ooh, good question.
2: There is an appearance of an old Marvel character that I think has a really badass introduction and the art for that that page when this villain is introduced is so good. So I'm excited for for that little kind of throwback introduction. And mm-hmm. there's a lot of, I don't know, fun ahead with Cindy. I hope they, they like this version of her. And I don't know, she's going through a lot. And then you learn a lot about the villains too. So I hope that the villains are, are fun as well. But yeah, that one introduction to the to one of
0: the villains is very cool. I'm looking forward to it. Finally, you've incorporated K-pop into a few of your stories. So, I'm curious if we will be seeing any of that here in Cindy's references or anything else.
2: Um, no, I didn't include K-pop. I think that her brother would mm-hmm. like K-pop more than she would. Albert and this version is a lot more pop culture savvy. He's cooler than her, so
0: yeah. He he seems that way.
2: Yeah, he, he's got the he's got K-pop hair, just so you guys know. He's got like K pop boy hair. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, are there any particular artists that you think he would be listening to? I know nothing about K pop, so if you have recommendations for a newbie.
2: <laughs> you know, okay, so I do not call myself a huge K pop expert. I do like K-pop though. My last book that I wrote, Somewhere Only We Know, there's a K-pop star in it. So I did have to do a ton of research and I ended up really loving this one artist, Sunmi, S-U-N-M-I. She's just so cool and offbeat and different. She's a little different from like the super happy, cutesy K-pop girl. She's a little, got more edge. I love her. Her music is, they're legit great and her performances are so fun. I also am just like a very basic K-pop, person and love bts so much they are one of the biggest joys of 2020 for me they released their new song the day my son was born and i feel like now they are forever going to be a part of my son's (laughs) life whether he likes it or not i don't care if it's not cool by the time he's older i have a lot of love for bts they're just great and i ended up loving blackpink which they're also a big band that a lot of people probably know another kind of mainstream K-pop band in the US, love Red Velvet. I listened to a lot of female artists because of my uh, K-pop character was a female in Summer Only We Know. So I ended up listening to a lot of girl groups and I also love Taemin. Those are kind of like my staples.
0: That's a good list.
2: Yeah, good start. So, you know, BTS, Blackpink are like the two big ones. If you guys have never listened to K-pop, they're like very popular and for good reason. They're really, really fun performers. And then you know, if you want to go a little bit more, a little more obscure, Sunmi is a really good, she's great.
0: Awesome. Well, even without K-pop references, I am very excited to see everything that we do have coming up in the Silk series. And I look forward to seeing all the fans excited reactions. Thank you so much for joining us today
2: thank you. This was so fun. I haven't been able to really talk about Sulk until now. So I feel like it's real. Yeah, it's now
1: real. (laughs) What a phenomenal conversation. I love hearing how writers discover their passion to write books.
0: We had a blast, and I even learned a little bit about K-pop. I'm so excited to see where Maureen takes Silk's character and how her relationships with her friends and family develop, as well as if she continues to put up with J. Jenna Jameson.
1: Okay, so make sure you pick up number one of Silk now, either in stores or digitally, and also pre-order issue two, which is out in April. And speaking about pre-ordering, I hope you're all ready for Women of Marvel number one. It is on sale April 21st.
0: We are very excited about it. You get so many different stories about some of our favorite characters and an introduction by Louise Simonson.
1: Wheezy herself? Wow, that is actually super exciting.
0: Yeah, we couldn't have a Women of Marvel thing without her.
1: Also, Ellie, don't you have some exciting you mean personal news?
0: Yes, a solo musical I co-wrote with an actor-musician named Ryan McCurdy is running off Broadway live for streaming for the next four weeks. White Rock Cliff tells the story of a man and a woman searching for each other along the Appalachian Trail and in the art of storytelling. Because you get to tell the stories you survive. And I'm particularly excited to be doing this now as theater showing how it has survived and might continue to evolve into new iterations. You can find out more at WhiteRockCliff.com.
1: That's so exciting. Congrats, Ellie. Thank you. I'll tell you what I'm
0: not excited about, though, which is the fact that our producer, Rebecca Seidel, has left us.
1: I know. But we do want to send her a big thank you. You know, best of luck. Uh, Becca was, you know, a huge part of the podcast for the last couple of years. And really a huge support for all of us as we figured out how to record. In this new world order. But you can check out her and Lorraine talking on an episode of Woman of Marvel all about Marvel's Declassified, which is on Sirius.
0: Absolutely. So until next time, this is Marvel, your universe. Women of Marvel is produced by Alexis Williams, Rebecca Seidel, and Zachary Goldberg, along with Judy Stevens, Angelique Roche, and me, Ellie Pyle.
1: Our development manager is Brad Barton, and Jill Duboff is our director of audio.
0: Special thanks to Maureen Gu.